Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. This is transmission number 21. In my mind, I am never going to die in no ghetto. Absolutely never. If a man tries to punch me in the head, the fight is on. If he cuts me, the fight is on. If I'm shot, the fight is on. I'm not losing no fight to no scumbag out there in no ghetto, period. That's it. No son of a out there is going to get me. The only way he gets me is to cut my head off. And I mean that. I'll fight you while I got no breath left in me. I don't think any of those animals in that street can beat me. I've gone that way for 18 years of street duty, and that's the way I'm going to keep on going. You don't lose the fight. And that was by Jim Phillips in the Calibri press video, Surviving Edge Weapons in 1988. So today, I'm going to be reading out of Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman's book on combat. The last podcast I did was on the book On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Today I'm going to be doing On Combat, and it is a chapter entitled Sucking Up Bullets and Continuing to Fight. You've Never Lived Until You Almost Died. I chose this chapter because it goes in perfect line with what my whole podcast is about, and that's resilience keeping on the fight, the warrior mindset. So let's continue. Let's flip the script. Warrior attitudes before combat, looking forward to it, and getting it over with. And this is a quote from Steve Tarani and Damon Frey in Contact Weapons, Lethality, and Defense. To some, combat was an empowering event and a learning experience that made them stronger in uncountable ways. To others, it became a dehabilitating and life-altering event that sent them into an uncoverable and psychological tailspin. So this isn't just for soldiers, Marines, sailors, airmen that are out there on the battlefield. This is for cops, corrections officers, EMTs. This is actually even for civilians who may find themselves in a situation where they may have to engage with somebody and a physical confrontation where they're trying to take your life. This is about having the warrior mindset to be able to come and overcome those types of challenges that may face us. So I want to make that very clear that this is not only for those who are serving in our military, law enforcement officers or EMTs, firefighters. This is also for civilians as well. All right, let's flip the script. If you are in a war, you are a warrior. There are only two types on the battlefield, warriors and victims. Sheep avoid the battle and refuse to participate, but warriors seem to have two basic attitudes as they go into combat. One group appears to honestly look forward to it. The second group doesn't really want to do it, but since it has to be done, their attitude is let's get it over with. Both are perfectly healthy and appropriate responses. Drew Brown, a reporter for the Knight Rider newspapers who served in combat with the 1st Ranger Battalion in the invasion of Panama in 1989, He was with U.S. forces preparing to invade Iraq in 2003 when he sent me an email with this astute observation. This is a quote from Drew Brown. I knew that a lot of what I'm hearing is bravado. You often hear things like, I just want to get in there, get it over with, and get the job done. Or it's just part of the job, both of which indicate a more detached view. How does one explain these two attitudes from a psychological point of view? Do you really buy it 
that when you read about soldiers who say they want to go to war, what is driving these men? And also, how does one account for the more detached attitude? I told him that I sincerely believe that a sizable number of warriors really do want to see combat. Some of this might be mindless bravado, but some of it is not. Many of these individuals are mature, level-headed warriors. They are like good football players who scrimmage and practice endlessly, but never get to play a game. Well, there is a game now, and these warriors want to be in it. I think these individuals must be thinking like Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. when he said, I think that as life and passion and action is required of a man that he should share the passion and action of his time at peril of being judged not to have lived. As I train warriors around the world traveling on my endless odyssey, I often get to spend time in police cars and law enforcement officers who drive me from airport to the city where the training session is to take place. One very senior state trooper told me once, as he was driving me across the vast Midwestern state in the middle of the night at 120 miles per hour, that there were two things he wanted before he retired. One was to have a car fast enough to hit a crow, where troopers do a lot of high-speed driving and have an interesting sense of humor about it, and the other was to get into a gunfight. He was not embarrassed or full of false bravado about it. He just simply stated the fact that he had trained for a lifetime and wanted to see what he could do. I trained many members of the special operations community, SWAT SEALs, Rangers, Green Berets, etc., and I have found this attitude to be a common with them. In ages past, it was quite common in popular poetry to speak of finding a degree of pleasure or satisfaction in battle. The poem Into Battle by Julian Greenfell, which I place as the dedication to this book, is an example of a poetic writing seldom seen today a poem that speaks to the joy of battle. Here is another one with a similar theme. This is a poem written J.K. Chesterson, titled The Last Hero. I shall not die alone, alone but kin to all the powers, as merry as the ancient sun, and fighting like the flowers, how white their steel and how bright their eyes. I love each laughing knave. Cry high and bid him welcome to the banquet of the brave. Yeah, I will bless them as they bend and love them where they lie. When on their skull the sword I swing falls shattering from the sky. The hour when death is like a light, the blood is like a rose. You have never loved your friends, my friends, as I shall love my foes. Man, I got chills reading that. All right, let's flip the script. All this might be dismissed as mindless romanticizing by those who have never been in combat, but those who have been there often express the desire to go back into harm's way. Is it politically correct to say that there is nothing good about war and no one who has seen it would want to do it again? This is the obligatory nod that everyone must give when talking about the possibility of going to war. And from one perspective, it is completely true. But I know many veterans who disagree. Some Vietnam veterans, for example, stayed for two, three, four, five, and in one case I know of a six tours. And every one of these individuals who I have information about is a perfectly healthy, functional human being who does not appear to have paid any significant psychological cause for his years of combat. They are the sheepdogs that we examine in greater detail later. It is not uncommon for police officers 
who have been in gunfights to compete for a position on their SWAT teams when they have the greatest chance to see even more action. And that it is common for SWAT team members to spend decades in the dangerous positions. Many of the SWAT military special operations I've worked with are sincere and open when communicating the pleasure they derive from combat. Those elite SWAT and special operations operators have dedicated themselves to a lifetime of combat because they like it and they are good at it. Few sane people would want to be in their trenches in World War I, to name just one example. But many individuals wanted very much to go to Afghanistan and the special forces to get some payback for when the terrorist attacks September 11th. As Bob Posey, a veteran police officer and trainer of Washington State, said, They are looking for a just, good fight, sniffing the breeze, pissing in the trees, being the sheepdog. Or as Sir Walter Scott put it, they are seeking the stern joy which warriors feel and foremen worthy of their steel. And I have to say that when you train for something, you want to do it in real life. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you train for war if you were scared to go to war? Especially if there's a war going on and you're in the military, you're a Marine, you're a soldier, and there's a war going on. You joined up, you trained to go to war, but then you don't want to go. You want to just stay back. Yeah, there's some people that may be like that, that joined the military for different reasons, didn't really understand what they were getting into, or you know, for some reason they wanted the benefits of joining the armed forces, but didn't want to put in the work. But those are outliers compared to the, most of the people who join who want to go and get in the fight. So, I mean, this is definitely true, what this book is talking about. Warriors want to fight. All right, so let's continue. Let's flip the script. I received an email from Monte Gould, a career cop, a SWAT operator and trainer, who was also a sergeant in the U.S. Army Reserves. He had this to say when he learned that he was too old to be accepted into U.S. Army Special Forces. Damn, the bad luck. I wanted time on target. Trust me. I'm like a peacemaker. Every time I show up in the theater of operations, peace breaks out and I get sent home. I feel like Mother Teresa instead of some kind of action hero. I'm going to start carrying a Bible and a Jehovah Witness handouts. They need me in the Middle East. All hostilities would cease overnight. The Arabs and the Jews would be friends, and I would get the express ticket home. This was my response to him. There are people who say that no one wants to go to war, and that a soldier hates war more than anyone. And I am sure they are sincere, but I know a lot of people who would beg to differ, and at best I can tell there ain't nothing wrong with them. Sir John Keegan, in his superb classic book, Face of Battle, wrote, We must take account of the undoubted willingness of some men at all times to risk, even apparently to enjoy extreme danger. Keegan used an example of Corporal Lofty King, a British commando in World War II. King's commander said this about him. He genuinely enjoyed fighting and looked happiest. Keegan goes on to say that there are moral considerations with which battle compensates a soldier. It would be foolish to deny that there are compensations for its cruelties, the thrill of camaraderie, the excitements of the chase, the exhilarations of surprise, deception, the exhilarations of success, the sheer fun of prankish irresponsibility. 
Colonel Jack Beach, a combat veteran who was the head of the psychology program at West Point, puts it this way. Whether you were in the heat of battle or just in the theater of combat, I believe most people, just being there is the most intense experience that they have. In many ways, it is very simple existence. Cares of ordinary life do not intrude. However, you are completely focused on a mission that you feel is vital and that you are contributing to and you feel very alive and from deep bounds of intimacy with those around you. Unless when you return to go back home to very meaningful work, you hunger for a return to that. That's true. This is not intended in any way to speak ill of veterans who would strongly disagree with these warriors who have found a degree of pleasure in battle. Indeed, those who are willing to point out that war is hell. The point here is that there are conflicting opinions in this matter. As to the let's get it over with attitude, I would submit that this is also a mature, level-headed, and healthy response. Most people feared with a dirty, unpleasant job that has to be done would have a similar attitude. John Keegan in Fields of Battle put it this way. The United States continues to elude me. If I understand it at all, it is though the strange profession that has shaped my life, the study of war. War is repugnant to the people of the United States. Yet it is war that has made their nation. And it is through their power to wage war that they dominate the world. Americans are proficient at war in the same way that they are proficient at work. It is a task, sometimes a duty. Americans have worked at war since the 17th century to protect themselves from the Indians, to win their independence from George III, to make themselves one country. It is not their favorite form of work. Left to themselves, Americans build, cultivate, bridge dam, colonize, invent, teach, manufacture, or think, write, lock themselves and snuggle with the eternal challenges man has chosen to confront, and with this intensity not known elsewhere in the globe. Bidden to make war their work, Americans shoulder the burden with intimidating purpose. There is, I have said, an American mystery of nature of which I only begin to perceive. If I were obliged to define it, I would say it is the ethos of work as an end to itself. War is a form of work, and America makes war. However, reluctantly, however, unwillingly, in a particularly workmanlike way, I do not love war, but I love America. Keegan gives credit to honor to the American fighting man, but as a graduate of British Army Staff College and after a lifetime of working with warriors of many nations and cultures, I would say that this applies to the British soldier and to many other professional warriors around the world throughout history. I think that either response, wanting to go or a workmanlike desire to do it well and get it over with is fine, and it is not for us to judge those who feel either way. These are warriors who are willing to answer the summons of the trumpet and enter the realm of combat. So, with that said, yes, both reasonings are acceptable. You can be a warrior and want to go to war. You can also be a warrior and not really want to go, but you'll go. And you'll do your job and you'll do your duty perfectly. Both are acceptable. Both people I would want to fight with. I'll fight with somebody who wants to go to war and I'll fight with somebody who doesn't really want to, but will do the job, will go to war with me and is willing to put their neck out to fight with me. I'll fight with that person any day. It is not for us to judge how a person perceives war of those who are willing to go and do it, especially for those who are not willing. If you join the military, you know that 
The United States has been at war for 20 years, almost 20 years. You know that there's a chance that you could go to war, but you sign that dotted line anyway, put that uniform on, and you train for war. As a law enforcement officer, you know that you might get into a situation where you might have somebody that is going to try to attack you, attack your life, or you might have to defend yourself or defend other citizens who are in danger of losing their lives. Those people who are willing to do that, I'll fight with them any day. But those who aren't, who would never want to walk in those shoes, who wouldn't fight for any reason, I don't want to fight with you. I don't want you on my team. Those people should not comment on how warriors conduct themselves or or what their mental mind state is in terms of how they feel about going to war. Because they have no skin in the game. They're spectators watching. If you're not interested in war, you're not interested in fighting, you have no desire, you wouldn't pick up a weapon to defend your own house, let alone your country, your opinion means nothing. All right, so we're going to continue. Let's flip the script. We're going to read a section titled Taking Hits and Driving On. Do they make them like that anymore? It says, heroism is the brilliant triumph of the soul over the flesh. Once you have made the decision to enter into combat, the thought of getting injured becomes one of your worst fears. Let us confront this fear. I want to share with you one of my favorite stories of survival, a true tale about a mountain man named Hugh Glass from back in the early days of the mountain expeditions. Glass was badly mauled by a bear and it looked like he was not going to make it the others there that day decided to leave jim and hugh to wait for him to die but the old cuss was just too mean to die and it was a long time before he slipped into a coma bridger figured that glass was dead so he dug a shallow grave and piled a few rocks on him and left hugh glass was still alive though so you can imagine that being buried angered him a bit After he managed to crawl out of his grave, he worked his way downstream, eventually making it to the Mississippi River, where he floated along, clinging to chunks of wood and living off the land. Finally, months later, he made it to St. Louis, where he told stories about wolves coming up to him and licking maggots off of his wounds. The first thing old Hugh did after he was rested and recovered was to buy a gun. One version of the story was he bought a knife. Then he sat back to recover from his ordeal and to wait. When Jim Bridger, the other man, showed up, he caught up with Bridger and held his gun on him. Hugh thought for a while about the situation, eventually coming to the conclusion that Jim Bridger was too young to die, so he let him go. Do they make warriors like Hugh Glass anymore? Here was a man mauled by a bear, left to die, and buried alive. He climbed out of the grave, crawled from Montana to St. Louis, and when he finally got the person in his gun sights who had made his life so miserable, decided the man was too young to die. Do they make them like that anymore? Yes, they do. Every day. Consider a gunman in Florida who shot a law enforcement officer in the eye. The eye popped out like a grape. An officer fell to the ground. Though he had powder burns in his good eye, he drew his sidearm and emptied his magazine into the perpetrator. Later at the inquiry, the officer was asked why he fired all those bullets in his gun into the man. 
He replied, because that's all I had. The officer may have had a bullet in one eye and powder burns in his other, and he may have been down, and he was definitely not out. Do they make them like that anymore? Consider Officer Stacy Lim from Los Angeles Police Department, whose story is legendary among professional police warriors. It began when she pulled into her driveway after an enjoyable evening of softball practice. When Lim got out of her personal car, she was immediately confronted by a group of gangbangers who followed her with the intent of carjacking her vehicle. Her first response was to call out so she her first response was to call out she was a police officer. They responded by firing a 357 Magnum round into her chest, which penetrated her heart and blew a tennis ball sized exit wound at her back. Stacy Lim stayed in the fight. She not only returned fire, but she also became the aggressor as she pursued the man, shooting him repeatedly. The remaining gangbangers suddenly remembered previous pressing engagements and the very wisely fled on their life for their lives. After she dealt with her attackers, she turned around and headed up to her driveway toward her house to call for help. She does not recall doing it, but as she was losing consciousness, she stripped the magazine from her pistol and threw it 20 feet away where it was found the next day. She did this because in the academy she had been taught, don't let them use your weapon against you. Her attacker died and Stacy Lim died twice in the operating table. She required 101 pints of blood and she survived, returning to duty eight months later. Today, she still works in uniform patrol on the streets in Los Angeles and her training philosophy is you need to prepare your mind for where your body may have to go. Do they make them like that anymore? Although Lim was the victim of a surprise attack by a deadly predator, she not only stayed in the fight, she took the fight to them. She was victorious because she was both physically and mentally prepared. Lim had a competitive attitude and refused to lose, and she had a plan and visualized determination to win, always to win. Can you imagine that? Coming home and having some gangbangers follow you, ready to steal your car from you. You identify yourself as a police officer. Maybe they think that, you know, thinking that maybe they'll back off. And instead they shoot you in the chest where round penetrates your heart. And she was able to return fire. She had her off-duty weapon with her and she was able to return fire. Now think about it. There's a lot of law enforcement officers who don't carry off-duty. After reading a story like that, you may want to reconsider. You never know what's going to happen. You never know when the wolf is going to appear. Will you be prepared to fight for your life? Or worse, let's say you're with your family, your kids, and a situation like that happens and you, and you don't have your off-duty weapon and something happens to them. You'll have to live with that for the rest of your life. It's a serious question. It's a serious thought that we all need to think about. We live in a crazy time. We live in a crazy world. We need to mentally and physically prepare for what may happen. On that note, we are going to stop here. And this is Flip the Script Podcast out. Oh, by the way, like and subscribe and share this video. And we'll see you at the next transmission out.